Good morning, everyone. It's good to see your smiling faces. Uh, had the result gone differently last night, there would have been less smiling faces. Uh, those of you that don't understand that joke, that's all right. The world does not revolve around Gonzaga basketball. That's fine. We all know it revolves around Arsenal soccer, and that's the way it should be. So, not a problem, but um, all in all, great result for Gonzaga last night. Uh, last week, Kevin started us with an introduction to our new series, Paradox, The Space Between. And uh, as we described, paradox is seen throughout the scriptures. You can't look at the scriptures and not see it. I'll give you just a couple of examples. Uh, the scriptures say, do you want to live? If you do, you must die. You want to be strong. If you do, you must boast about your weaknesses. If you want to be rich, you must be poor. If you want to be first, to be willing to be last. If you want to live, you must be willing to lose your life. If you want to be first, you should be the slave of all. If you want to be exalted, you should be brought low. If you wish to be great, you should humble yourself. You get the idea that no matter where you turn in the scriptures, you are going to find paradox. And this morning, we have the opportunity to look at our first uh, paradox in the scriptures in this particular series. And uh, to do that, I want to highlight a few characters in the scriptures, these amazing characters that I think demonstrate so clearly the topic that we're going to be talking about. So the question is, what do these individuals all have in common? What do Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Gideon and David all have in common. And I know the answer is on the tip of your tongue, and I know the answer is doubt, right? Because they all have incredible amounts of doubt. Incredible amounts. Some crippling doubt. Some filled with great questions. Some wondering if God would ever come through. Some hiding in wine presses. Some afraid to do what God asks, some wrestling with God, some with just all different types of emotions. And yet, if I asked you that question again, what do all these people have in common? Some of you would go, well, it's obvious, Hebrews 11. It's the hall of faith. Correct. It's the exact same list of people. They had incredible doubt and also were honored in the scriptures as being people of incredible faith. And so this morning, what I want to do is look at that paradox, faith and doubt, and specifically want to use our time to try to normalize doubt, to encourage us to understand that faith and doubt are really two sides of the same coin. And in fact, we cannot have a lived faith experience without at some point experiencing doubt. Doubt is so profound, it is a common statement to talk about faith and doubt among writers. Here are a few examples. Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. Life is doubt, and faith without doubt is nothing but death. And Lamont says, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but actually certainty. The one who has not God in herself or himself cannot feel his absence. And one of my favorites, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. 
See, doubt is such a common part of our Christian experience and our Christian tradition. It has become such a part of it that I think, in fact, we often ignore major aspects of doubt. Let me give you an example. A very famous passage that most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. It's often called the Great Commission. The text reads this way. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this is a central passage that we often turn to to talk about this idea that we are called to make disciples of all people and to disciple them into the way of Jesus. And yet, did you notice it? The very clear statement about how this ties into faith and doubt. And if you're looking and you're going, I don't think I see it. I don't get what you're getting at. That's okay. It's because I removed three words. This is how it reads. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. What? Has that always been in there? Like, have you read that like a hundred times? heard messages about it over and over, but never once heard anyone say in the middle that the disciples went to Jesus, saw Jesus post-resurrection, hanging out with them, and while they're there with him and he tells them, go and do this all over the world, they're still doubting? Anyone? I've never heard it before. Nobody's ever mentioned that when teaching on this particular passage. In fact, so much so that I think we kind of just read right over it and move on as if it didn't say that the people who lived their life with Jesus for three plus years of ministry, some of them for almost his entire life on earth, experienced that all with him, and yet at the same time were filled with doubt. We somehow within Christian faith imagine that if we have both faith and doubt in the same sentence or both faith and doubt in the same experience, that it somehow makes it null and void, that we have to have one belief, faith, without the other. Manon Ingle pushes against this very idea when she makes this statement. The minute we begin to think we know all the answers, we forget the questions, and we become smug like the Pharisee who listed all his considerable virtues, and thank God that he was not like other men. Those who believe they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. I think we've been caught up in believing in the idea of God but not necessarily in God himself. And so this morning, what I want to do is turn to a pretty familiar passage. Again, a passage we've looked at many times. And I want to speak into this idea of faith and doubt. And like I said, my hope is to normalize doubt. But even beyond that, 
my greatest desire is that you would walk out of here this morning with one idea from this passage that you could kind of meditate on throughout the week and it could inspire you to live into more of a relationship with Jesus. All right? So our passage is this. It's in John chapter 20, and it reads this way. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, and the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, what I want to do is just point out some ideas in this paradoxical story that will hopefully give you some handles for faith and doubt as you continue to wrestle with this passage, but also the complexity of this paradox. First idea is this, that Jesus appears even when no one is looking for him. Jesus shows up, nobody is on the search, nobody is wondering, and yet the truth is, in this passage just before it, Mary Magdalene has already seen Jesus, already told all the disciples that he is alive, that they should find him, and they find themselves all locked up, and yet Jesus shows up even when no one is looking for him, which means that Jesus comes to us in the same way amidst our fear, amidst our anxiety, amidst our doubt, our wondering. And he does it even when we're not looking, even when we're unaware, even when we're afraid or fearful or concerned. And what I love about it is that he comes non-judgmentally, He could have come and said, why are the doors locked? Why are you afraid? What are you doing? He could have reprimanded them. He could have said something uh, to chastise their lack of faith or their lack of belief or their doubt or any of that, right? And instead what he does is simply in the most compassionate way, says, peace be with you. He speaks shalom over them, wholeness, goodness, flourishing. He says, peace be with you. And in the midst of our doubt and uncertainty, Jesus also appears even when we're not looking. And he does so with kindness. Second idea. Jesus 
next appearance takes place, as the text says, after eight days. Now, some of you might go, why does that even matter? What significance does that carry? Uh, The interesting thing in both Jewish and Christian tradition is that the idea of eight days represents a new beginning, something fresh, something different, something beyond the norm. Most people are familiar with seven days, because we think of seven days as the week, but the eighth day basically is meaning you're on the threshold of entering into new and divine space. The interesting thing in this text is that this is the second time that it's mentioned. The first time that it says it's the eighth day is the day of the resurrection. So on the eighth day, Mary Magdalene comes, and there's this sighting of Jesus And then everything begins. The second example of the eighth day is this moment. This moment that we've labeled as doubt. This moment that we've labeled as saying, oh, Thomas, he didn't have his stuff together. This moment is the moment that basically is signaling that there's another new beginning about to take place. That this is a pivotal moment in the story and should not be overlooked. Third thing I want you to capture We typically frame this story as a doubt versus belief idea. In verse 27 specifically, a lot of versions say, do not doubt but believe, which is pretty much a poor translation of the text. It would be better to say either, do not disbelieve but believe, or another rendering, do not be unfaithful but have faith. Okay? It's an encouragement of faith. It's an encouragement of faith, which is the idea of hearing, the idea of following. It's not just the idea of believing mentally some idea. It's different. And uh, most of you know that uh, I am not a huge fan. Maybe even you could say I'm allergic to the idea of either or thinking, right? This idea of binary, it has to be this or it has to be that, Um, And I think in many ways, and we won't get into them now, that either-or approach is often reductive and simplistic and doesn't allow for the complexity of the human experience at all, okay? But we often frame it as an either-or. I think Barbara Brown Taylor frames it a little bit better when she says this. By the time I resigned as pastor from Grace Calvary Church, I had arrived at an understanding of faith that had more to do with trust than with certainty. I trusted God to be God, even if I could not say who God was for sure. I trusted God to sustain the world, although I could not say for sure how it happened. I trusted God to hold me and those I loved in life and in death without giving me one shred of conclusive evidence that that was so. This understanding had the welcome effect of changing faith from a noun to a verb for me. See, we act as if faith is a noun. It's something we possess or something we don't. And when we don't, then we walk away. Faith as a verb is something entirely different. Faith as a verb means we keep at it. We stick with it. We wrestle We have questions, we have doubts, we have wondering, we wait. All of that is faith as a verb. I don't think this story is a story that should be framed as doubt or belief or doubt or faith. Rather, 
that this story is an expression of faith as a verb. Another idea. I believe this text also helps us to see that faith is not, or this idea, there's not a one-size-fits-all version of faith. If you look at all of Revelation 20, you see the various responses to the resurrection. It's like a little story after little story after little story. You have Jesus who sees Mary, and she mistakes him for a gardener. He's totally confused. He then explains to her, like, hello, it's me. And then the text says that she runs off to get the disciples. And she goes to the disciples and she says, I've seen Jesus. And they're like, yeah, whatever. I mean, it doesn't say that in the text, but basically they're like, yeah, whatever. Not true. And in fact, they're like scared. In Mark's rendering of it, they go away and tell no one. That's probably the most accurate rendering. They go away and tell no one. Then we see them here in this story, hiding. We see them freaked out. Jesus walks into their midst. No wonder he says to them twice, peace be with you. Doors are locked. They're afraid. They're scared something's going to happen. He comes in, peace be with you. They're still a little nervous. No, really, peace be with you. It is me. He shows them himself, and then it says, then they believe So then they go and tell Thomas, because Thomas wasn't there. He's probably deconstructing his faith. That's cool. It's been happening for a long time. We're still doing it. That's great. He's probably doing that, going, this did not go the way I imagined, right? I'm struggling. They go to Thomas and they say, hey, look, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. And he's like, unless I see him, unless I can touch him, unless this happens, not interested, I'm not going to believe. And then Thomas sees, the text says, and believes. But when we look at John 20 as a whole, one of the things that I think is so clear is that you have Mary, you have Peter, you have the disciples, you have Thomas, you have the rest of the disciples seen throughout the text. And we discover that in their response to the resurrection, you have people who believe right away, you have people that don't believe, you have people that struggle with that belief, you have doubting, you have wrestling, you have all of that, because it's not a one-size-fits-all experience of faith. If we went and interviewed every single one of us in this room, the expression of faith and the way you arrived at where you're at on your current journey would be radically different from person to person. And that's okay. In fact, I think this text indicates that that's probably the way it should be. Next, Jesus welcomes Thomas's doubts and questions. See, the risen Jesus completely accepts the fact that Thomas demands proof. He doesn't show up and say to Thomas, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You should have believed. It should have looked different than this. No, he comes in. And uses the exact language that Thomas did from the previous passage. So Thomas says, unless I see, unless I can touch his hands, unless I can put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus walks in the room on the next occasion and goes, so you see, would you like to touch, would you like to put your hand in here? He's giving the exact same language, not to mock him at all but I think to simply meet him exactly where he's at. What we see is a Jesus who is very accommodating. A Jesus that says, 
that's where you're at in the faith journey, fantastic. That's where I'll meet you. I don't think Jesus is someone that when we're at a particular place that he finds himself way over here and he's like, well, if you take a couple more steps this way, then we'll figure it out together. No. I mean, over and over in the Gospels, you see Jesus coming and meeting the person right where they're at. He's so accommodating. It's almost as if Jesus expects questions, that he expects doubts and wondering. And his willingness to accommodate Thomas's unbelief is a reminder that God can handle our doubt, that he's big enough for it, that it doesn't scare him. And he takes our doubts seriously. In fact, I believe that he welcomes them. Next idea. Thomas is just like the other disciples. This is not something that I hear discussed much when it comes to Thomas. We put all the 11 or 10 together, and then we're like, and then Thomas. Mr. Doubt and Thomas over on the side, right? The rest, they had it all together. But what's so fascinating is that Thomas doesn't ask for anything different than all the other disciples received. The first text tells us that he walks in and he shows them, this is me, here's my hands, here's my side. That's what he says to every one of the disciples. And then the text says, and then they were excited to be with Jesus, right? Basically, like, they saw it all, and then they went, oh, wow, okay, that's cool, that's great. But still, if you want to pick on somebody, pick on them. Why? Because eight days later, they're still in the same room, and it's locked, right? So if anybody is struggling, it's those ten. Thomas isn't in on the first one, and then... We give him a hard time because he's like, well, I want to see Jesus. I don't want to see his hands and his side. And we're like, oh, man, I can't believe he asked for that. All the other ones had the exact same thing. They don't get a hard time. Or maybe that could be the response that we all have, which is, man, it would be really helpful to see continued signs of Jesus revealing himself to us. Maybe that's the exact thing we all need. And it doesn't just mean the hands and the side. It means times where God shows up in your life in amazing ways that were unexpected. And then you go, it's more evidence. It's more of a sign. It's so incredible. I was doubting, I was wondering, and yet God came through again. That is what faith looks like. So Thomas is not all that different than every other disciple. There's also no sense in which Jesus requires belief as something contrary to or lacking in evidence. There's never in this passage in any way the false assumption that if we have more faith, we'll ask fewer questions. No. In fact, the Bible offers a different picture of faith, one where doubt and faith are woven together in such a way that it makes all the sense in the world to ask. Because faith, as Hebrews 11 speaks of, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Helen Keller describes it this way. It need not discourage us if we are full of doubts. Healthy questions keep faith dynamic. I love that. Healthy questions keep faith dynamic. Unless we start with doubts, we cannot have a deep-rooted faith. One who believes lightly and unthinkingly has not much of a belief. He who has a faith which has not been shaken, has won it through blood and tears, has worked his way from doubt to truth, 
as one who reaches a clearing through a thicket of brambles and thorns. It's earned, struggled, it's challenged. Let me give you two other ideas. One is Thomas's reaction. The text says that Jesus said to him, put your finger here, see my hands, put your hand here in my side. But here's what I think we don't talk about enough. It doesn't say that Thomas actually did that. It doesn't. It doesn't say that he just started like groping Jesus and like, I got to figure this out. No. Jesus is like, hey, do you need me to show you this? And Thomas has the most articulate explanation of who Jesus is in probably the whole New Testament because as soon as he sees it, he goes, my Lord and my God. That's it. Everything changes for him in that moment. Right? That's profound. But we don't even know if he actually needed to touch Jesus. Last but not least, Jesus' final words, I believe, are for us and not for Thomas. Now, although in the narrative, Jesus is speaking to Thomas, I think Jesus' words at the end of this scene weren't actually in reality for Thomas. See, the gospel writer is speaking to his audience. He's communicating this information, this story to everybody else. And since those who have not seen yet believe, those are precisely the people, the original readers to the text would have been those people. In addition, all of us, right? So a lot of readers hear this and they think what Jesus is doing is kind of picking on Thomas. They say like, Jesus is like, Thomas, seriously, I had to pull out all these stops to get you to believe this, and that's getting frustrating. I wish that wasn't the case. Could you not be like these other guys, right? But instead, I think what Jesus is saying is he's likely speaking to future generations, knowing this will be written down, and he's basically saying, blessed are you because you saw and believed, but how much more blessed are those who will believe having not seen. It's not like a, uh, shame on you, but yes. It's more like, well done, you believed, but also, how much more for everyone else who does not have the opportunity to see and experience being with me present and yet will still believe. So Jesus isn't so much scolding or rebuking Thomas, I believe, as he is blessing us. Now looked at this way, Thomas moves from this inferior doubter that Jesus rebukes to a model disciple who declares Jesus as his Lord and his God. And I think this makes a lot of sense because John then follows up that statement with this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these, the stories we've just been reading, are written so that you, the reader, and us, the readers, may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. In other words, what happens to Thomas is exactly what John happens, hope happens to all of us as we read this story. That as we immerse ourselves in this story, we actually become like Thomas, a person full of doubt, and a person full of faith at the same time. And so what is this story 
of Thomas teach us, hopefully a little bit of all of those pieces, but even more, that Jesus accommodates our doubts and welcomes them, and in fact, those doubts might be the very essence of our faith. Let's pray. God, it was uh, in many ways a treat to go back through uh, that text for me because there are so many assumptions, so many things I've taken for granted, so much that as I've read the text, I just assumed went a certain way because I've heard it my whole life. And yet Thomas becomes this model of faith, this person who demonstrates a rich and deep faith in the midst of uncertainty and doubt. A disciple who then goes on to spread the gospel throughout India, who is martyred for his faith, someone who has deep and profound courage, because it's the courage he demonstrated in all of his time in following you. God, may we be like Thomas. May we be people filled with doubt and filled with faith. And maybe in our wrestling, we come away walking with a limp. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.